Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today I have my medical director joining us. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have our clinical chief, James Seek. And today we're going to talk about a subject that if you've ever worked in healthcare in any capacity whatsoever, you've been involved, you've committed, you've seen, you've thought through, you've tried to find troubleshooting methods to avoid medication errors. And here at MCHD, we are in the same boat. This is a topic that we struggle with from the Department of Clinical Services side to try to prevent and remediate, yet also have a culture of open reporting. So it's sort of a a push and a pull as far as that goes, because we have to prevent them. They can be dangerous. Nobody likes to make mistakes. Nobody likes to potentially cause patient harm. So creating an environment and a culture where that can be reported, it's really difficult. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of describing different types of medication errors, prevention methods, talk about some of our experience here at MCHD. The big case that's been in the forefront recently, how we got here with this topic, uh, was the medication error at Vanderbilt University. Talk a little bit about that, Dr. Dixon. Yeah, I mean, it was the the perfect setup. We had a system, there were systems in place to stop the error, to you know, notify the provider that they were given the wrong medication. And you had essentially a provider where the the blame was kind of hung on the provider. And it seems to me, Casey, that we really didn't look at the whole, you didn't read a whole bunch about what contributed to it. It's like the Swiss cheese model. It's never one error. It's never one omission or commission. It's when they, lots of, of faulty steps line up together, both system and provider. And this particular one, uh, there was criminal uh, prosecution and consequences for a medication error. So this is why this is such an important topic in healthcare. Um, we we have medication errors. I mean, I th- think the first part of it is you have to acknowledge we have them. Absolutely, and I feel like we here do a decent job, as you seek, of looking at medication errors and starting with: is this an us problem? Is this a systems problem? Before we shine the spotlight onto the medic directly. I know one of the recent examples that illustrates that pretty well from my standpoint is our stocking location of the 100cc bags and the lidocaine. Talk a little bit about that and sort of the change that we made. That's a sort of a lead-in to to, um, some of that medication error types, but it's important from a big scope that you look at your system first before before you put all the blame on the provider, whether it's a medic, a nurse, physician yeah i agree we always take a process approach and look at our process and see if, if that's what's setting is what's setting the provider up for failure and in that case we did we got we had a very close call with lidocaine and from our investigation we identified that lidocaine was stored very close to the normal saline and you know just complacency and you know getting accustomed where things were we had a provider that reached up and grabbed the lidocaine instead of the normal saline and had a close call Fortunately, no negative outcome from it, but for an organization, it was very eye-opening. Yeah, and when you think about 100 cc's of, of liquid, not only is the packaging similar, the, the volume similar, similar location, it makes no system sense whatsoever 
to have a 100cc bag of saline beside, you know, a similar volume bag of lidocaine. So you mentioned, Dr. Dixon, uh, the Swiss cheese model, James Reason. Uh, this is always brought up when we talk about things like medication errors. This comes into play when we talk about catastrophes in the airline industry. Pretty common talk that you'll hear at most any EMS conference is talking about the Swiss cheese model. But the key here is to look at what did the individual contribute to the error? What did the system contribute to the error? And how many different steps along the way did we have to have errors line up for a catastrophe to happen like happened at Vanderbilt? Humans make errors, but the system should be set up to expect these, number one, because people are fallible. That's just a fact. And secondly, the system should also be set up to minimize them, to put people in the right environment to succeed. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Casey. I mean, you said it, and I'll say it again because I think it, it is worth repeating here, that we deal, our employees are human beings, and human beings make errors. Our expected number and your expected number of medical errors should never be zero. It's, it's, that's not a reasonable expectation. Now, we should look at our system and our human factors individually on each case to see can we set up some process, something uh, to insert in there, whether it be on the human side or the system side, to excuse me, make the process safer. Right. And <clears throat> to remember that good people make mistakes, high performers make medication errors, focusing on the individual loses sight of patterns. Oh, it does. And you figure this, you know, just the stress during the patient care, the sense of urgency and all that. I mean, it's our responsibility to engineer, you know, safety processes where we can reduce those, those errors and hopefully make a more streamlined process for the provider to make a better decision. Yeah, Chief, it is. It's all over the board, right? It's not just the newest uh, attendant here at MCHD. It's all over the board. It's captains, it's chief officers, it's in charges that have been here and very seasoned and very, very good providers, very good employees. Which leads us back to the impetus for us doing this podcast today is trying to take a systems approach to anticipate coming medication errors. We know they're going to happen and to try to even be preoccupied with that. Where are they going to come? Where, where can we anticipate our errors before they happen so that we can try to design the system that puts our medica medication administration in as successful of an environment as possible. Preparing for this podcast, went back to PubMed and did some EMS medication error lit search disclaimer, not exhaustive, but it's really obvious really quickly that number one, there is not a lot of standardization surrounding description of medication errors. There's a lot of describing that we know this is a problem, but as far as classifying these and really putting them into different categories so that we can track better, it gets a little bit murky. We've got wrong drug errors. We've got wrong dose errors. We've got improper dilution when medications, for example, we'll talk about in a second, push dose pressors when we have to dilute before we administer, wrong timing, uh, wrong volume. So. All those can be errors when we're giving a medication. There's also an entirely separate discussion around errors of omission. In other words, we should have given a medication based on protocol and we didn't. That's things like a gunshot wound to the chest, systolic blood pressure of 85, heart rate of 128, 
got a 15 minute transport to the local trauma center and TXA is not given, or we have a patient that is uh, violent and agitated that does not receive a sedative and causes potentially a medic injury or uh, a patient injury and they should have received a sedative. So before we know which type is most common, how we remedy each type, one goal for the industry as a whole would be to work towards better standardization of medication errors. And that, that gets us to, you know, the wrong protocol and the wrong patient, which is also another type of error. Combative patient, let's say that they got a sedative and they were post-ictal, but we gave droperidol instead of midazolam. That's a medication error type in and of itself, probably one of the most common ones that we catch because we can see those in chart review. We can see those, you know, from the quality standpoint. They got a sedative, they got a medication, they may have gotten the right dose, but we would prefer a benzodiazepine in a post-ictal patient as opposed to droperidol with no anti-epileptic activity. And then we get to near misses, which is what happened with our lidocaine normal saline. We realized the error before a significant enough amount of the medication was infused to cause any lidocaine toxicity. Those are even more rarely tracked and more uh, rarely recorded. So one goal overall within your system, if you're in uh, the shoes of the chief clinical or you're in, in an admi administrative quality position, would be to try to categorize these, try to classify them because all medication errors aren't equal. There's errors of administration, there's errors of admission, uh, there's different dosing, protocol, timing, dilutional errors, and each one of those in their own small groups are going to have different solutions. And in some cases, it's just not really talked about a lot. Uh, I've never heard a podcast on a topic like this. I've heard on medical error in general, um, but I think like any other thing in, in clinical practice, if you want to improve on anything, you, you can't improve on anything unless you know, A, where you started and what your progress has been and try to identify where these errors are coming from. Are they coming all from one provider? Are they coming, are they all route errors? Are they dose errors? Are they wrong medication errors? And try to classify these. And when you zoom out a little bit from the individual med error description, there are themes surrounding medication errors that are well reported in the literature. We'll go through the seven themes. The first one we've hit on already, that's the organizational error, the organizational component. And really the, the key here is protocol education. Uh, the key here is making sure that your education is really focused on new medications. When you look at EMS systems as a whole, and you look at medication error rates, common sense, medication error rates go up as your number of medications go up. We've seen this yeah. uh, numerous times. Yeah, we've seen this, you know, as our call volume went up in Delta, we had more medication errors. Here recently, our call volume's up and it's correlated, we've had more. And talk about the culture. I think that that's an important part of this discussion, Chief, is our culture is an organization surrounding errors. Because I think you can't really fix it unless you nurture a culture that is blame-free. Yeah, I, that's been the MCHD approach and the clinical approach from these medication errors is, you know, like we touched on before, we try to identify the process and if it is an individual, we want to support them with education or whatever we can where, you know, they don't feel like they're being punished and as they spread the word, this happens to them, then more providers are willing to come forward when they have a medication error. And we have a pretty robust reporting system here through our... And that's not exactly 
the majority of EMS systems. Uh, Blame-free culture with feedback, you know, not just you made an error, but you made an error, and here are some ways we think you can change your practice to prevent this. Here are some educational tools to solidify that. It, paper from PEC in 2017, uh, Hoyle uh, et al., found that only 50% of medics felt like they could report an error without the risk of retaliation. So in other words, half of the EMS systems out there, medics are walking around making errors, having near misses, afraid to report. Which is problematic from the patient side. Yeah, and that leads into which kind of errors are more likely to be reported, errors that result in harm. And medics are gonna be more likely to report in supportive environments. So we've gotta not only create that environment, then when we see errors that are systems, problems, then we have to not only remediate and support and re-educate the individual medics, but we have to share that within the system. So let's talk about within that because equipment is the second theme surrounding medication errors. And that's when we have things like lookalikes, packaging changes, storage location and standardization we talked about with lidocaine and normal saline and supply chain issues. Just every single day, something else is short. How do we And how have we at MCHD taken the approach of, okay, we found this medication error issue, lidocaine and normal saline, for example, we could talk about push dose uh, dilution here. How have we in the Department of Clinical Services seen these problems and done just exactly that, shared that knowledge? What are some of the ways that we've done that, Chief C? Yeah, I mean, we've approached this, uh, we've addressed this situation in every CE for the past year. Uh, So we've approached it from that direction and then provider feedback and just recently in our in-charge academy that was part of our in-charge academy was going over medication errors and how to prevent medication errors. Yeah and I think that to to really ingrain this two-step verification that we use that I'm going to hold up the medication to Chief Seek, show him the vial, show him what I've drawn up and tell him exactly what dose I'm giving and he's going to verbally confirm that so that does two things guys. That that convinces me I'm actually giving what I think I'm giving, and then I get verbal verification from Chief that we're, in fact, giving the right drug to the right patient, right? So it's kind of the six rights without getting in the weeds. One of the biggest problems that I've seen in our organization, I see all over hospital systems, is there's varying ways that people give medications, and very rarely, very rarely do I see two-person verbal verification of a medication. It's just simply not done. So to change the culture here, one of the things that we've done is we not only teach that, but you put it on the, the, their individual, the chief's runny valve. So when they get a runny valve and that was not done, the chief officer will give feedback to the medic on that runny valve form. And as well in our training procedures, it's one of those key points. If we run through a medication scenario or in our scenario testing, they need to do that two-step verification because what we're doing is trying to change their practice habit, which is very, very difficult to do. Yeah, and we've brought that all the way from our NEOP onboarding process that's in paperwork all through the in-charge process. I mean, we've brought that full circle so when an employee enters the organization, it's ingrained in their mind, we're gonna verify, verify, verify before we give that medication to right, a patient. Right, because it's over 80% of these errors, right, in the in the literature when they, when they take a deep dive into these medication error, over 80% of the time, that step's not done. No one is verifying that. So we bled over from, and this is the way a lot of these medication 
air themes happen is it's usually more than one involved. We bled over from the equipment into the procedural act of giving the medication. But we can go back the other direction and say, if we change the concentration of ketamine or we change our concentration of fentanyl, then we have an equipment-themed risk. And if we don't procedurally verify, we're surely not going to catch that. I know that I can remember multiple times when we've had stocking changes, concentration changes, that's an immediate service-wide email with two pictures so that the medic can see this is the old ketamine, this is the new ketamine. When it goes back to the system approach from James Reason and its Swiss cheese model, we have to anticipate these coming failures. If we're not anticipating supply chain issues and changing in concentrations of our uh, high-risk meds right now, you've got your head in the sand because it's impossible to get ketamine. You take whatever concentration you can get. There's probably no more high-risk medication that we carry than ketamine. So, yeah, let's roll over into the procedural themes, and you hit on a lot of those already. You know, this is the wrong med, wrong concentration, the wrong dose, and it's almost always due to no verification. So we talked about six rights or five rights, the idea that you verbalize and confirm, right, medication, volume, amount, route, patient before you give give the medication. And when a witness error is observed, you're exactly right, over 80% of the time there's no verification. The same study from Hoyle in 2017, less than 60% of medics verified their doses in that survey, survey study. Two-person verbal ver- verification lowers error rates. It's known that it happens. Now the catch is it has to happen. And how do we solidify that? How do we ingrain that into our medicine, medicine, into our medication practice? And that's exactly what Chief Seek was talking about. What we've decided to do here at MCHD is start from the very beginning of NEOP and progress through every provider, every step, all the way up to the medical directors expecting verification and, you know, five rights of medication administration to occur in medical director oral scenarios from the very bottom to the very top. And this brings in, you know, communication as a medication error theme. And that communication has to be stressed when we're giving the medication. It also has to be stressed that the reporting and the communication from the field into Office of the Medical Director, into the Department of Clinical Services, we have to get those near-miss reports. We have to get those error reports. We have to have a non-punitive system set up, or we never know. Or you really are just an ostrich with your head in the sand. I will say, yeah, I mean, I would agree completely, Casey, and we can't really get off this and go to the next topic without kicking in environmental. Uh, this We work in a very stressful environment. There's so many visual and uh, auditory. auditory inputs that you're getting in the field all the time. There's multiple people, you know, speaking at the same time. I think, Chief, I love to steal one of your terms, which is sometimes that we have this this kind of man-made sense of urgency that really doesn't need to be there. And, and an example I can give that's very concrete in our service is we took RSI, rush, 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 to place a tracheal tube and really put some safety initiatives to change and slow that process. And lo and behold, we had less hypoxic events. And why? Because we were more thoughtful about our setup, our positioning, our, our overall approach to the procedure and resuscitating the procedure. And it's very similar here. I think that that's one of the best terms I've ever heard. And I use it and see it all the time when I'm teaching residents and I'm out in the field with medics is we have this 
this kind of self-imposed sense of rush, 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 and urgency that really is not there. And we have to recognize we have that and slow ourselves down. Yeah, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. That urgency comes from just the provider says, oh, we're getting close to the hospital. I feel like I needed to get patients some pain control. There was an error made. Pain control is a great one to bring up because when you think about different medications, there's going to be gray area in, in urgency. Ketamine, for example, if you've got an agitated, delirious, tachycardic, hypertensive, sweating patient who's dangerous to themselves, dangerous to the medics, there is an urgent nature to sedation in that patient. We can't deny that. Pain control, on the other hand, objectively for me, while absolutely vital, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, pain control was important, it's, an, it's, an, it's a vital part of our medical care, but I would much rather us from now until eternity take an extra 30 seconds, verify volume, amount, dose, route, patient. Is there been any packaging changes? Double check, read the vial, read the bottle, and not make a fentanyl medication error and delay that pain medication for 30 seconds, then rush that unneeded sense of urgency and have a patient in respiratory depression because we gave 3x fentanyl because the packaging, the concentration changed and we didn't hold the vial up, read it, verify it, and make sure. And as a patient, if I put myself in the patient gown, I would much rather have 30 seconds more of pain and know that the medic, the nurse, the physician who was giving me my medication had actually verified it. Yeah, have that, have that mental discipline to slow yourself down, to know, to take your time to verify, verify, verify before you give. Sometimes the patient, the patient themselves increases the risk. And this is where an agitated delirium patient comes into play. This is where a, a complex septic shock comes into play. An airway management patient, the more complex the patient, the more decisions you're making, the more likely you are to make an error. This is where our push dose error really comes to light. And we made a protocol change in that case. So we saw errors. We saw errors that were related to complexity of our protocol and we changed to a safer uh, medication administration. We started with nine cc's of saline and one cc of one to 10,000 epinephrine. And then we realized, wait a minute, that's all fine and good and it works unless all you have is one to 1,000. And if all you have is one to 1,000 and you put one cc of one to 1,000 in nine cc's of saline, now you've got 100 mics per milliliter and your push dose, instead of being 20 micrograms, is now 200 micrograms. And what do you see on your rhythm strip, doctor? Lots of dysrhythmia, <laughs> yeah. lots of dysrhythmia. So right. we said, how can we do this in a safer manner? We saw the errors, we saw the vital sign changes in the charts. We saw the patient's blood pressure going from 80 to 180 and it rang bells and we reviewed with multiple medics and realized, hey, these are good medics. These are medics that know their protocol. This is an issue with supply chain. This is an issue with stocking. This is an issue with sick patients. So lots of overlap. How can we do that better? And we moved to one milligram and 100 cc's of saline, one to 1,000, one to 10,000, doesn't matter what stock we have. We're still at a concentration of 10 micrograms per milliliter. What about our pediatric patients? It's probably a, a spot to talk about the patient-related problems that come in with our peds patient. We have a pretty decent safety net, I think, in place here at MCHD for dealing with those. We've talked about that on the podcast before, and that is the Hantevi app and using a safety net there to help us with age-based, ideal body weight. Here's your equipment sizes integration with the MCHD protocols. I'm not sure we're going to improve on that product 
no no uh, conflicts of interest. There are other products out there that are similar, but to use a cognitive uh, support tool for pediatric dosing just makes all the sense in the world in 2022, especially with you know the app-based nature. That's how we communicate. That's how we function in our daily lives. Just makes common sense to me. And these are the riskiest patients, right? I mean, these are patients where we're giving tiny, tiny little doses to tiny, tiny little kids. Um, the stress is up many times in this cases. If you're starting a line or starting an IO and giving a, a pediatric patient medication, usually it's a fairly high stress case for the paramedics. So there's lots of places uh, where air can be introduced there. And as Casey said, a cognitive tool to offload that and not have to add that one step of med math in there into a very complex case is a system win. It's a provider win. There's another cognitive based error you see that you and I have talked about. You have a, a lot of insight into this one. And I feel like it's one that when you brought it up to me, it was almost one of those duh moments that I had never really thought about when it comes to cognitive themes of medication error. And that is when we try to get too precise with our dosing. So let's say you have a weight-based protocol for fentanyl, for example, and it, calculation comes out to 67.5 micrograms. What do you do with that in your practice? Where do you see that errors can come in there? And how do you, how do you balance that with protocol compliance and medication error risk reduction? I'm a pretty simple-minded guy, so I try to really uh, make my process as simple as it can and typically do my fentanyl in adult patients in increments of 25. They either get 50, 75, or 100. You know, I mean, for the most part, we're it's a best guess at the patient's weight uh, that they provide us, so I think there's some, some variance to stay with. Like, we, you know, we don't want to overdose the patient, but I think if we stay, you know, within five milligrams or, excuse me, five micrograms either way in fentanyl, you're much more likely to make an error trying to measure out 67.5 micrograms than you are a very set and commonly drawn 50, 75, 100. By no means are we saying stay outside the protocol, just round it off. Even if you're worried about overdosing, round it off a little under, you can always give a second dose to a standard value that doesn't require excess calculation, very finite measurements of volume because cognitively all that's going to do is increase your risk. What is what have people done out there? I, I wanted to look at the medication error literature and EMS to try to find some best practices. That's where that's where I went digging around. How can we improve our system? And honestly there's not a whole lot out there. There's a group out of Sedgwick, Kansas that implemented the medication administration cross check. This has been reported in the literature. They found a 50% decreased monthly error rate with the introduction of a medication administration cross-check. But when you boil it down, it's not dissimilar from implementing a visual version. They had a placard in the ambulance of five rights or the six rights of medication administration. So not shockingly, if we stress and get increased compliance with five rights, six rights of medication administration, guess what we're going to get? Medication error reduction. The question is, how do you make that stick over long term? How do you make that stick out of a study environment where you're trying to do research and gather data? That's, that's, the, that's the holy grail. How do you do that? So I think you start by modeling it at all levels of the organization. So, you know, step one, we realize we, had a, we have problems that we're going to make errors. Then look at the system, the human performance factors on them. And then lastly, come up with a, it's a multi-pronged approach to how to stop 
to stop or, or decrease these errors and, and improve our risk uh, safety net for the patients. Uh, one of the first ways, one of the key ways to do that is to model the behaviors we want to see from our providers. So I forced myself, it was not my practice, but as we have shined the light on this here at MCHD, my practice in the hospital, uh, if I'm in a, on a run with the medics in the truck, is if I give a medication or I'm drawing it up, I'm responsible for it, I do it myself. I read it, it and I have to get really close. Has anyone really read these medication bottles? They are so small, I have to get my readers on, read the medication, and I hold it up and say it. And I think you have to model the behaviors that you want to see in your providers. That's number one. The next is, you know, I can never remember five rights. We probably should put them up on a placard, but just the medication uh, administration cross-check, just that double verification, that two-person cross-check, I think would do go a long way to many of the errors that we see in medications here. Um, these have to be reinforced. As we said earlier, Chief put them in uh, the run the uh, run evaluation form that our district chiefs, if the chiefs run with a, a crew, they'll do an evaluation and say, hey, how do we do on that call? How, where's some areas for improvement? And that's we put that as a, a specific task. Did they do a medication administration cross-check? We put it in skills training for all of our, our skills stations. We put it into oral scenarios. So those are some of the steps you can take system-wide. Any I left out, Chief? Trying to no, nah, just the use of hand heavy. You know, it's just not. You right. know, it's just not isolated to to pediatric patients, especially. Good point. I mean, you always don't have a second provider back there to verify the medication with you. And to me, a best practice is verify that through hand heavy multiple times, and then re-verify again before you before you administer to the patient. Now, to yeah, give give credit to Brad Ward, Brad Ward's anecdote in this situation: What if you have one medic in the back? Is to cross-check with the patient. I'm going to give you Ketorolac for pain. This is an anti-inflammatory medication. I suspect you have a kidney stone. This really decreases the you know spasmodic pain in the ureter. We're going to give you 15 milligrams IV. That's our standard dose. That's X milliliters. You've cross-checked with the patient. You don't have to have your partner in the back to cross-check. You know, a lot of our medication examples, I honestly believe in that single provider situation, just a cross check with the patient would would have saved us and i cannot imagine no proof for this one that that's not going to improve patient satisfaction and they're going to think wow paramedic yeah. seek really knows what he's doing here he's telling me what medication i'm getting he's checking the volume checking the concentration these folks are on it blasphemy doctor so you're telling me you're trying to convince chief seek and i that patients actually like their care providers to speak to them yeah i think it's i think it's a uh, decent decent yeah. foundation you, to start with you, and you heard it first here yeah right. who would have thought of that right? who would have thought of that <laughs> and lastly the misconception that i feel like is most important that i want to leave the listeners with is the idea that more concentration is needed you just need to concentrate. You just need to think about it. You just need to concentrate more. And in fact, that's the exact opposite that we want. We want to break in that cognitive train, that urgency train that we all have because we have a sense of urgency because we're 911 emergency care providers. We have to break that pattern, stop that noise, whether it's the visual, the auditory, the cognitive complexity, the patient complexity, and checklist verify. And that can happen in five rights, six rights, the way that uh, they cross-checked in Kansas. There's lots of ways that you can do that. It can happen with your partner. It can happen with the patient. You can read the vial to the wall 
for, for all I care, but we have to pause. And that pause entry is really the main key for reducing the individual medication error risks. So if you have ideas out there, listeners of the podcast, and you've implemented other tools in your service, other ideas, other protocol changes, please email us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. This should be an active conversation between all EMS services out there. I'm sure others have best practices that we could learn from. We're happy to share ours. Anybody out there uh, that's listening that would like to discuss this further, this can be a bi-directional thing. Uh, absolutely, we're open to, to learning and trying to, to take this number as close to zero as we can get, knowing, like Dr. Dixon said earlier, it's never going to be zero. We just want to have active pursuit of minimization, know that these are going to come, expect that they're going to come in all levels and ranks and colors, shapes, and sizes of providers, and in the end, try to take it back to the patient and keep them as safe as possible. As always, thanks for listening. Leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We like five-star reviews. We have sensitive feelings. Chief Seek has done an enormous amount of work in the background here at MCHD trying to reduce these medication errors. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about this if it wasn't for him. So thank you, sir, for joining us. Dr. Dixon, anything you want to add before we close up? No, I think this is a really good one, Casey. Thanks for bringing that forward, Chief Seek, and all the work you've done. Uh, it's for sure increase the safety profile for all of our patients. So strong work. As always, thanks for listening out there. We'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.